0: Heads up, this episode contains spoilers.
1: Hey, Lou. What's the problem?
0: <laughs> Let me take you on a trip back to 1992 in the town of Insuka in southern Nigeria, where an American professor named Jonathan Haynes
2: was teaching film and literature on a Fulbright grant. I was interested in African cinema and was fairly newly arrived in the country and um, learning what I could about Nigerian cinema which had pretty much completely collapsed. Yeah, what he'd quickly learned about Nigerian cinema was that in 92, it seemed
0: like there wasn't any being made, which is why one day that year, something caught his eye
2: at a local music stall. So this was in the market in, in Suka, which is a university town. Then it was like a big village. So, an open air market, just a stall made out of very rough wood, selling music cassettes mostly, but also some pirated films.
0: That wasn't the weird part. In Nigeria, movie piracy was an industry unto itself. But he remembers flipping through the hand labeled pirated VHS tapes and
2: finding this strange object a video cassette in a full colored jacket with a cellophane wrapper of a nigerian film it was
0: a new direct-to-video movie called living in bondage the jacket said the movie was in Igbo, one of nigeria's several languages and one in which to jonathan's knowledge almost no films had ever been made it had a professional looking color cover the shop's pirated tapes didn't have covers at all this little cassette was something totally new
2: and i was very interested in what that new thing was and it turned into something very very big
0: I am Rico Galliano and from the curated streaming service Movie, welcome back to the Movie Mubi podcast. Movies the best place to see beautiful hand picked cinema from around the globe. On this show we tell you the stories behind those films and any other movies with stories worth telling. This first season we're calling Lost in Translation. Every week we learn about a different international culture through the lens of a movie they love. Specifically, a film that was a huge cultural phenomenon in just that one country. And there's maybe no more spectacular example than Living in Bondage. It couldn't have possibly had more humble beginnings, which you're gonna learn about later. It was shot for less than a lot of people pay for a used car, but it was such a hit It spawned the modern Nigerian film industry, which today is one of the most prolific on the planet.
3: What happened was that Living in Bondage became that breaking point. Every
0: town now,
3: there are millions of people who are making their livelihood from the industry.
0: And that is what Living in Bondage brought That is Chris Obirapu. He directed the movie, and I spoke to him, the movie's co writer, producer, and African film scholars and critics to learn how this little project ended up creating what is now generically known as Nollywood. So listen up, because we're about to translate Living in Bondage. The story of this movie begins in the mid-1970s with a small-town kid from eastern Nigeria named Okachokwu Four, though these days he likes to go by his nickname.
1: My name is Okie Four, and um, I really didn't get to watch a lot of films while we were growing up. I'm from a very humble family. Down there in the east, uh, cinema culture wasn't very encouraging to the young folks.
0: That all changed in 1975. Ok was 10 and his family took a trip two hours north.
1: My cousin that I went to visit decided to take me to cinema just to give me a little bit of an entertainment. The film they were showing that day was, um, I remember very clearly, was a Charlie Chaplin film.
0: He doesn't remember which Charlie Chaplin film exactly, but from the way he describes it, probably one of Chaplin's early flickering silence.
1: It it didn't really have a lot of dialogue, but to see moving pictures made so much impact because before that time, I've never really seen motion pictures. Even television was not an everyday thing. And subsequently, as I was growing up, it became part of me to go to cinema to see
0: how these things were done. And the 70s in Nigeria were feeling to him like a pretty good time to see how moving pictures were done. <laughs> Director Ola Balogun was leading a small charge of homegrown Nigerian filmmaking, and he was getting some international attention. His movie Black Goddess was an epic looking co production with Brazil. There were also lots of movie theaters showing Hollywood, Bollywood, and Chinese films. Okay, says Bruce Lee was the talk of his village. And maybe most importantly, a Nigerian oil boom meant people had cash to spend on seeing films and the government had cash to fund the arts, especially the giant state-run TV network NTA, which trained and employed tons of visual artists and technicians. Add it all up... And Okei had a real sense of optimism about the future of the film and TV industry.
1: The Nigerian cinema culture was very, very well organized and it was booming. So because of that, we all went to school.
0: Specifically, OK and many of his friends went to film school at the NTA's own television college. And by the time they graduated in 1987, there was no work for any of them. How did that happen? How would Nigeria's industry go from optimism to near bust in just over a decade? Lots of ways, but let's start with a series of military dictatorships, culminating in one led by this deceptively soft-spoken guy.
4: I'm pleased to take this opportunity to declare once again that this administration attaches the greatest importance to constructive and helpful criticisms as
1: well as the freedom of the press.
2: The Babangida military them. dictatorship from 1985 was the most predatory that the country had ever seen.
0: Professor Jonathan Haynes again. In 2016, he wrote the book Nollywood, the creation of Nigerian film genres.
2: The word kleptocracy was invented to describe regimes like this, which were basically just organized to pillage the country. That's that's what they were about.
0: The regime was already predisposed to keep all that oil money for itself.
2: And I trust that we will be able to count on the goodwill of your
4: countries and organizations on this issue.
0: And then the next year came along something Haynes feels made things way worse.
2: The Babangita regime was kind of forced by the World Bank and the IMF into the structural adjustment programs, which were being forced on to countries across Africa and other places. The idea was state delivery of services, anything from universities to healthcare were inefficient and bad, and everything should be turned over to the free market. And it's hard to exaggerate what a disaster they were. Especially
0: for people like O.K. Agunjafor.
4: There was inflation. There was a rise in the costs of inputs. And all of this affected many things, not just in terms of the economy, but also people's social lives and, of course, people who were working in the entertainment industry.
0: That's Darren Ajau. She is a culture writer and a reporter in Lagos. And she says between the regime and fallout from the structural adjustment program, the entertainment sector was decimated. TV funding shrank, there was a hiring freeze.
4: And um, for those who were making films in celluloid, it became really, really expensive to import film stock, meaning fewer films were being made. And actually, by 1992, there were no films being made
0: in celluloid. And by then, most of the cinemas had also closed not just because there were so few movies to screen but because when the economy tanked the crime rate soared
4: there was a rise in armed robbery cases there were also rumors of kidnappings for example and people being murdered or killed it was also a time under military rule you never knew who could have been picked up for some crime against the government, for example. So less and less people went out, except it was absolutely necessary. So many people stopped going to the cinemas to see the few um, films that were still showing.
0: So the economy nosedives, everybody loses their jobs. Some people turn to crime. On top of that, you've got a, a military that might just pick you up off the street and it just becomes safer for people and easier to stay in. Yeah, it was safer and cheaper and Okeo Gungifor and his fellow film school students graduated into that world.
1: So we were all not employed and we didn't have any other thing to do since what we learned in school was filmmaking. We were all wallowing in self-pity. Why did we go to school at all in the first place? We were regretting that we went to school. But for some of us, We learned how to make films properly and I thought to myself that there must be a way that I can turn around that practice into
0: something new. And around that time is when O.K. says he dreamt up the basic idea for a movie that he could shoot for cheap. Not on expensive celluloid, but on VHS. A movie that would be watched not in a theater, but on cassette, in the safety of people's living rooms. And with a story that would speak to Nigerians, who felt like they were huddled at home, getting less and less, while dark forces seemed to be taking more and more.
4: Okay, um, so, *Living in Bondage is a two-part film. The central character is um, Andy Okeke, um, who is the husband to Merit, a very, very devoted, almost saintly wife. He sees himself as... Someone who is not at the level that he should be, and he believes something should be done about that.
0: Andy's always in and out of jobs. When the story begins, he's trying and failing to be a trader. And he's constantly, almost comically, bemoaning the fact that he doesn't have a fancy car like some of his friends, specifically a Mercedes-Benz (laughs) E-Class. Merritt, on the other hand, tells Andy he should be happy with what he's got. Like, for instance, her undying love. But he can't get his eyes
4: off objects of immense wealth. So um, he runs into an old friend, Paul, who he sees is living the life. And he attends a party with Paul. It's the birthday party for Ichie million who is also actually the boss of his wife.
0: Now, Andy's heard rumors about Ichi Million, namely that he's part of a cult. Another rich guy at the party, Chief Amigo, some say he killed his own mother and used her blood in a ritual to bring him wealth. Still, these guys are enviably wealthy, and it's a pretty swinging party. So it's at the party that Andy decides, oh
4: yeah, I want to be like these guys, I want to... Um, have the business they have, I want to hang with the women that they hang out with, I want to drink the wine that they drink. So it's actually there that Andy is convinced to join the occult. And then he's taken to his initiation ceremony where he's told that for him to become a full-fledged member, he has to sacrifice the blood of the person he loves the most. And the person he loves the most happens to be married.
0: Andy tries to back out of the cult, Tells Paul he never knew this was gonna be the deal, to which Paul says. Shut up, I told you, didn't you want to be rich at all costs? So
4: um Andy sacrifices his wife, Merit, in his bid to become rich. And when he has all that wealth, she of course comes back to hunt him. Andy. And to make his life a living hell. <laughs>
0: So Living in Bondage's story is a wild mix of genres, part soap opera, part morality play, part horror movie. But Jonathan Haynes says amazingly, that story was actually kind of based on real events.
2: This theme of so-called money rituals was very much in the news. I mean, you can not believe that this kind of magic works, but it's very hard to disbelieve that people weren't trying it. The newspapers, you know, all the time had stories about the police investigating cases of bodies turning up missing parts and stuff like that.
0: So, this isn't just kind of a horror movie trope. This was in a way ripped from the headlines.
2: Yes, absolutely. And people lived in real fear of this. There were
4: always reports that you would find a body maybe by the road, they could have plucked out the eyes, of course it could have been vultures that did that. So there were always those stories, they were really, really rampant. And just like you would see in the film itself, there were always people who in like neighbourhoods you are wondering, oh this person just became rich overnight, what did he do? And he doesn't have any
0: obvious source of income. And Haynes chalks that up less to magic rituals and more to Nigeria's equally enigmatic oil economy.
2: Wealth had always been closely associated with work because basically these had been agricultural societies where how much wealth you had depended in a very direct way about how hard you worked out in the hot sun. But suddenly there was all unimaginable quantities of money that came from oil oil not from doing anything, just from the licenses. And that whole system was completely corrupt and opaque. Nobody could understand how this all worked. It was just these invisible groups of people doing each other these favors. So the idea of the money ritual, where you had a secret cult that became rich as individuals, but also as a group, this kind of rhymed with, an actual structure of the economy. Living in Bondage's
0: story, in other words, tapped into a zeitgeist.
4: Rarely had any um, film before then really talked about ritual killings for money making. The fact that Living in Bondage presented this where the central character was kind of like an everyman character that you could all relate to. It was bound to be a hit.
0: Of course, that would come later. In 1987, O.K. Ogunjafor says he was still wandering around, unemployed, with this movie idea and its projected budget in his head.
1: So within that period, I said to myself, let me make a film. It will cost me, from my own calculation, all I needed was 150,000 naira. If I can get 150,000, I will make films.
0: That was around 10,000 U.S. dollars. To scare it up, He started hawking women's cosmetics by a roadside in Lagos.
1: It was something I thought I was going to do for a few months, and then make 150000 and then make a movie, and then die happily after. But then it didn't work out that way. I find myself for four years on the streets, under the harsh weather.
0: But in his spare time, he started hanging out at the Nigerian National Theatre, talking movies with other underemployed artists. And one day, he offered some direction to a group of actors rehearsing a play.
1: So they said, why are you hawking if you are dislearned? And I said to them, I am hawking because I want to make money so I can tell a story on a film. So one of the ladies on that particular set took me aside and said to me, I can connect you to somebody who will give you money to make a
0: film. His name was Kenneth Nabue.
2: Kenneth Nabue was... I think the most powerful player in the market for pirated American and Indian and Chinese films. Jonathan Haynes spoke to Nabue for his book. The guy sounds like a serious businessman. Taciturn, you know, hard-bitten, Started selling things in the Onicha market, which, according to some people, is the largest market in Africa. It's a huge, huge, huge emporium. He came up through these markets. The people who succeed there are very tough and they're very smart. And he saw the potential for making Nigerian films on video and releasing them as video cassettes.
0: That's right. Kenneth Nibue had the same vision as OK. In fact, Nabue had actually already financed some direct-to-video movies in the Yoruba language. Actually, they were more like film plays, some shot in a couple of hours. They'd made good money. OK's pal at the National Theater wrote him a letter of introduction to Nabue. He wasted zero time.
1: So she gave me the note, and I ran to Kenneth's office that afternoon uh, from my workplace. I I was still um, wearing my knicker. Uh, my boots for Hawking. So I I went to him looking haggard. So when I went in and he looked at me from head to toe, he couldn't reconcile the person who gave me the note from the person standing before him.
0: (laughs) He's like, who is this guy?
1: And then so, 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 so he sighed and said, are you the person I said, yes. He just said, if you are the person, uh, all I want to see is your certificates. Uh, go and get me your certificate. He wanted to dismiss me uh, with that, thinking I didn't go to school. He
0: was saying that he wanted to see your school certificate, that you had some proof that you were actually a filmmaker.
1: Yes, yes, yes. So, <laughs> But, you know, that is where he got it all wrong. Within the next one hour, I was back with all my certificates. His countenance changed. He looked at me and said, are you the person? I said, yes. It's okay, so what do you want? I said, I need a VHS camera. He said, What type of VHS camera? I said, Super VHS camera. And that's how my meeting with him sparked what you can call today
0: Nollywood. The rest of that story and its bitter end. Coming up in just a minute. Stay with us. Mubi is a curated streaming service, production company, and film distributor, a place to discover, discuss, and celebrate beautiful cinema. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film, each one thoughtfully handpicked by our team of curators. From brand new work by emerging filmmakers to masterpieces by cinema's greatest icons, there is always something new to uncover on this platform." And throughout this first season of the podcast, our online film magazine, Notebook, is publishing a complimentary piece alongside each episode in a series called Mubi Podcast Expanded. This week, we have an article by film critic and culture writer, Darren Ajao, building on her commentary featured in this episode about living in bondage and the Nigerian film industry. So, finish this episode, then check out Darren Ajao's article on the Notebook at Mubi.com slash Notebook. And of course, to stream the best of cinema, simply head over to Mubi.com to start watching. All right, so it was the early 90s. Living in Bondage was about to be shot thanks to Kenneth Nabue and Oke Gunjafor, two guys who saw the potential in direct-to-VHS making. Their next order of business was to take on a third true believer.
3: My name is uh, Chris Obirapo. I see myself as a filmmaker, and um, I believe as a good director, you must be a good storyteller, which I am. That confidence
0: is justified. Chris started in the Nigerian entertainment biz as a child TV actor in the 60s, was an assistant to respected director Ola Balogun on his film The Music Man in the 70s, and when he came aboard for Living in Bondage, he was a pro-TV director, under contract with the state-run broadcaster NTA. NTA. And he says he didn't just agree to direct Living in Bondage for the paycheck. Instead, at a time when making movies seemed out of reach to most Nigerians,
3: it was a conscious effort to demystify uh, filmmaking that can not only be in the purview of uh, people with big-time money and uh, big-time equipment, that you can still make movie with the new machines that came out. That was the VHS that
0: came out that time. You kind of wanted to prove it. You wanted to prove that this could be done. Yes. And he pulled it off, though he admits it wasn't easy without the professional crew he was used to. Some of the cast were well-known soap opera actors, But otherwise?
3: It was like I was running a tutorial. Uh, The other actors, we are taught on the set as we are going on. The same thing with continuity. The cameraman had not done any major work. That was his first major work. The lighting person had
0: never seen a movie done before. The seams definitely show. The lighting in Living in Bondage is soap opera bright. The sound? (laughs) Variable. And the sets? Basic the scenes in Andy Okeke's house were shot in a corner of Nabue's office and the cult's creepy sacrificial temple. That's a whole story. Chris says, For those scenes, Nabue trucked the crew out for a location shoot at what was supposed to be some kind of cool looking space used by a Yoruba traveling theater troupe.
3: So when we got there, it was a little shrine by the corner of a the house. Then I said, If this is what we came all the way from Lagos to come and shoot, then you could have told me, I could have set it up in your backyard in Lagos.
0: Chris eventually did do a version of that, erecting the cult set outdoors. The cult scene, some
3: people believe that it was done inside the house. It was not done inside the house. I did it outside the house. I set it up outside the house and we set it up and shoot.
0: The night. That actually led to another problem, though. Remember, this was a time when rumors of real-life money rituals were swirling. No one had ever seen one, but here was what looked like one actually happening, right outside a house. Chris says Nabue feared repercussions. The guy was scared. The executive producer was
3: scared. He was scared. He said, I don't know what you are doing, you know? Don't put me in trouble, oh. I said, look, I said, relax, man,
1: relax. Very true, because nobody has seen this before. And you can't tell them you are actually shooting a movie. Nobody will believe you. So people got afraid.
0: Okay, Ogunjifor actually acted in the ritual scenes himself. He played Paul, the guy who lures Andy into the cult.
1: All through the time we were shooting the movie, people were afraid. At a point, some of us who were in the movie... We were afraid because we knew what we're exposing will, will bring a lot of attack upon
0: us. You were, I mean, basically, you were afraid that people might attack you because they thought that you were doing a real money ritual? They thought that people would like of to... Of
1: course. Of course. But, you know, they say, he who is down needs fear, no fall. I was already down. So even if I needed to die to make a statement in the career I have chosen, I will do that.
0: Turns out... That wasn't necessary. There was no premiere for Living in Bondage, no previews. Nabue just leveraged his pirate distribution network to flood Nigeria with VHS cassettes of the movie, starting with regions where people spoke the language the film was shot in, Ebo.
2: One of the things that was unusual about it was it was in the Ebo language. And in fact, when I first saw it, it was in Ebo only with no subtitles. And I, I don't understand Igbo, which was a problem. A subtitled version would come out the next year. But it was really the first movie in Ebo. There had been a celluloid feature film, but that never got much traction. So that was part of the sensation of Living in Bondage was this cultural pride that the Ebo's now had their own thing. And the other sensation was
0: the video's splashy, full-color cover. Living in Bondage wasn't Nigeria's first direct-to-VHS movie, but it was the first that was packaged like a pirated Hollywood movie. Nabue was symbolically announcing a new kind of homegrown storytelling had arrived, equal to Hollywood, and people ate it up.
2: It was a huge deal. In my book, I relay a story told by a well-known Nigerian actor who describes walking through Port Harcourt. He could hear, just as he walked down the street, the soundtrack of the movie coming at him from all directions. Like, everybody was watching this film.
0: A young Darren Ajao was one of them.
4: We had um, borrowed the VHS from some of our family friends. They're like, as soon as it was over, I knew I would be relaying it to my classmates the next day because it was a thing we used to do then. You would watch a film, come to school the next day, tell someone about it. It's like, oh, have you seen this film? You should see this film. And there were those who had seen it who didn't even remember the title, not knowing that that was what they had seen.
0: And Chris Rapu. He was under a strict contract at NTA, so he had to use a pseudonym in the movie's credits, which made it weird when all anyone wanted to talk about at NTA meetings was living in bondage.
3: You know, it was funny because uh, somebody came out to the meeting and said, come and see what these uh, boys are doing. They're going to send us out of business. (laughs) I was laughing. They didn't was the guy who shot it.
0: So, wait a minute. Am I understanding this correctly? So, like, people, you're working at the TV station. People are saying, oh my God, this video movie is doing incredible. They're going to eat our lunch. And, you, yes. and you're like, uh, you couldn't tell them that that was you that had made the film. No,
3: no, no. If I do that, they will fire me. <laughs>
0: Obi who may not have had his name on the movie, but he had definitely made the point he'd taken the job to make. Living in Bondage proved a no-budget VHS film could find a huge audience. And soon, sure enough, everyone started making them.
2: Suddenly there was this new organ of cultural expression. It was an industry. It was exciting. Suddenly, lots and lots of people are trying to get into this business. And it grew and grew and grew, you know, in the most staggering and impressive fashion.
0: How fast did an industry spring up around this
2: movie, basically? It was really fast. You know, within seven or eight years, Nigeria was producing more than 2,000 films a year. Which put that in context for us. Like how many does... That 2,000 films is equivalent to the total number of celluloid films the African continent had produced to date
0: more movies in a few years than the entire continent had put out ever
2: yes yes and you know these days when anybody with a cell phone can make some kind of movie it's kind of hard to recall how different things were when living in bondage came out for black people anywhere to be able to express themselves on this scale was really a new thing it was truly revolutionary But meanwhile, the
0: partnership that launched that revolution hadn't lasted. No one knows exactly how many copies of the original Living in Bondage eventually ended up in the world. Ironically, Nabue, who'd been running a pirate video operation, saw his own film get pirated all over the place. But easily tens of thousands of units were sold. And the proceeds? OK, and Chris say they barely got a dime.
1: I got 1,500 naira my transport allowance during the production. And after the production, because it was a hectic job for 21 days of non-stop, I was working without sleeping, I broke down, I'm a human being. The hospital treated me and the bill was another 2,000. So I I sent a message to Kenneth to say, please give me some money so I can get out of hospital. That 2,000 plus transport allowance is what I have from living in body till
2: today that I'm speaking with you. Nabue said he made essentially nothing because it was pirated immediately. A lot of people don't believe that because he seemed to have a lot more money and he moved into fancier offices and he had a lot of money to advertise the second part, which was made a year later.
0: Yeah, there was a Living in Bondage Part 2 in 1993. OK and Chris weren't involved. On the video copy I saw that includes both parts, OK only gets a producer credit, even though he says he outlined the whole story with Nabue and that it's based on his own experiences. Nabue claims he was the sole screenwriter. And the truth?
2: It was a real collaboration, but it blew up with a lot of bad feelings. And then the film, nobody really knew what this was going to turn into and you know in retrospect of course everybody wants to claim a major hand in creating it but in this case i think all three men chris rapu also brought important elements to it it's
0: all something chris tries to be sanguine about what i directed has
3: made a lot of people rich and i did not gain out of it but my happiness is that it has given job to thousands of people all over Africa because something they did not know that was possible has
0: become a possibility now. For many years, A lot of those people made movies that were clearly in Living in Bondage's image.
4: So following the success of um, Living in Bondage, there were a lot of other films that tried to copy its themes and um, its specific genre, which early Nollywood scholars termed like the occult melodrama or the ritual dramas. So um, it spawned a lot of films that dealt with rituals, that dealt with um, get-rich-quick schemes that had to do with people who were drawn to the occult in order to make money.
0: And even today, with Nigerian cinema light years more technically sophisticated than back in 92, the original story has staying power.
1: I can see you love your
2: cars. Good you, afternoon, sir. Um, I've always loved cars since I was a child, sir. You wanna drive?
0: This is a scene from Living in Bondage, Breaking Free a slick and actually pretty gripping 2019 sequel to the original. Set in the present day, the hero of the story is Andy Okeke's son.
1: Let me show you how to drop the top yeah? What I really like about this, there's something about it
2: so exotic.
4: That one was made in 2019, and you're looking at 26 years after living in bondage, and to still find that elements of it continue to resonate. The Nigerian society today, it shows that they got something right with the films.
0: What were those? What are the elements that still resonate?
4: The endless lust for wealth acquisition because in the first two instalments Andy is lost in after a Mercedes Benz E class that was the reigning car in ninety two or ninety three. His son is lusting after a G-Wagon, the Mercedes-Benz G-Class. Faster!
0: So it's like the greed never ebbs, and it's just the object of what they lust after just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Than exactly. The, once you get the E-Class, you're going to need the G-Class. <laughs> Most likely. Step on it. Living in bondage, breaking free was a huge hit, just like its ancestor. And in a way, you could almost read this sequel as Nollywood reminding itself not to get obsessed with gadgetry. Darren Ajao says it's a more professional industry now, with a wider variety of genres and far higher budgets.
4: But on the other hand, of course, you find that, yes, fine, maybe you have great equipment and you have good funding, but there's no story. Many people will agree that the stories from earlier Nollywood actually stand up better than some of the stories that you have now.
0: It actually reminds me of something Jonathan Haynes told me about his time in Nsuka buying VHS tapes in those early days of Nollywood.
2: Nigerian films were always slightly more expensive than the pirated American films or Indian films. You know, American blockbusters that had cost $200 million to make. You could actually buy more cheaply than Living in Bondage, which had a budget of $12,000, <laughs> which Why is that? Because people were really interested in this story. Yeah, the interest of the story and the self-recognition. I heard this over and over again. You know, Nollywood tells our stories. And Nigerian audiences have been willing to overlook all kinds of technical flaws or uh, very rudimentary aesthetics you know, all kinds of problems because this other thing means so much to them.
0: And that's the movie podcast for this week. Follow us to hear more deep dives into movies that were singular hits in a single place. Next week, the Mexican film that's barely remembered in Mexico.
2: Are you on? I kid you not,
0: 2,000 original DVDs of Mexican film. And I have never seen this one before. That became an all-time smash in a country on the opposite side of the planet. Tune in, it's a fun one. Meanwhile, this episode was hosted, written, and cut by me, Rico Galliano. Jackson Musker is our booking producer. Our engineer was Andy Carson, mastering by Stephen Cologne. Martin Ostwick composed and performed all the music. The show is executive produced by me along with John Baronicea, F.H. Ecarel, Daniel Kassman, and Michael Taka for MUBI. If you're digging the show, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. It'll make it easier for others to find us. We would love you to email us personally with your thoughts, ideas for future episodes, or just random movie trivia. Our email is podcast at movie.com. And for an ever-changing collection of carefully hand-picked films from iconic directors to emerging auteurs, subscribe to Movie at movie.com. Till next week, it's a big world. Watch globally.